Dear friend, I'm Dr. David Jeremiah, and I'd like to take a moment to speak with you as the world faces the coronavirus pandemic. There is no question we are living in a time of unprecedented uncertainty. It is unlike anything I have experienced in my whole life. And the temptation in times like these is to allow fear and worry to creep into our thoughts and to rob us of our joy. But in these uncertain times, we need to remember that God is still in control. And my prayer for you is that you are healthy, you're in a safe place and surrounded by those you love. Please keep the ministry of Turning Point in your prayers as well. We will continue to bring the healing power of God's Word to you each day on radio, television, and online. And I really hope this will be a source of encouragement to you during the current coronavirus. So be safe, be in the Word, and be in prayer. If you don't fully trust God, you don't fully appreciate just how big He is. It's true, the size of your faith is in direct proportion to the size of your God. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah returns to the story of Job, a man with enormous faith in a truly immense God. From his series, Making Sense of It All, here's David to introduce the message that asks the question, how big is your God? That's a really interesting question, isn't it? And somebody's going to say, well, what do you mean how big is God? He doesn't have sizes. He's God. Well, what we're talking about here is how big is God in your perspective? How much does he fill your heart and mind? And what are you willing to believe because you have a big God? I remember growing up, uh, this will surprise some of you, when I was a student at uh, college, I was a disc jockey on a Christian radio station, and I used to do the call-in shows where they would call in with their favorite song. And there there was a guy who was a, a very well-known soloist back then. His name was Bill Carl, and he had a great baritone voice, and his signature song was, How Big Is God?, And uh, some of the lyrics of that song, he's big enough to fill the whole universe, but small enough to live within your heart. That captured it. And the, the question we're going to ask in today's lesson is, how big is your God? And we've decided to go back to Job in the 34th through the 37th chapter to explore that. This will be an important lesson for you as you face uh, the challenges that are coming in the year ahead. Hey, before we get started into our lesson as a part of the Making Sense of It All series, um, I continue to tell you about uh, Ron Morgan's book based on Romans 8.28. I'm so excited about this book. Interestingly enough, in Romans 8.28, there are 28 words, and um, Rob Morgan wrote a 200-page book on 28 words of Scripture to help us understand the incredible meaning of this profound scripture. One of the most famous scriptures in the New Testament. Um, someone said this this verse is the pillow for your head, uh, for your Christian experience. You, you, you pillow your head on Romans 8.28. We all know what that means. All things work together for good to those who are called according to the Lord Jesus and who love him and are loved by him. It's a wonderful verse, and uh, the book that Rob wrote is the best thing I've ever seen on this verse, and uh, it's a uh, hundred sermons in 200 pages meant to encourage and help and strengthen you in your walk. So be sure and ask for your copy of this book when you send your gift to Turning Point during the month of February. We have them here. We're ready to send them as soon as we get your request. 
And when you send your gift and ask for this book, we'll get it in the mail to you and you'll have it before you know it. By the way, there's a study guide and a set of CDs for this series. The study guide has Making Sense of It All on the front. It is an outline of every one of the messages we're dealing with right now in this series. And there's a package of CDs that goes right along with it. Great resources for small groups. I hope you'll take advantage of the hard work that we do to provide curriculum so that you can be encouraged with one another as you interact with God's Word. Right now, it's time to get started with this question. How big is your God? Back in the early 1900s, believe it or not, the University of Princeton was Princeton Theological Seminary. It was built and founded for the purpose of training young men to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, how far we have come. On the faculty of that school in the early 1900s was a very famous professor by the name of Robert Dick Wilson, who taught Old Testament from 1900 to 1929. One of the students that was in his classes between 1915 and 1917 was a very famous Philadelphia preacher by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse. Every student of the Word of God knows who that is. They've read some of his books. He's rather famous for one of the great illustrators of the Bible. And perhaps his greatest claim to fame is that Donald Gray Barnhouse gave a series of messages on Romans. And every preacher who's ever preached on Romans has read Donald Gray Barnhouse's commentaries on Romans. For 33 years, Barnhouse was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, one of the great Presbyterian churches in the history of our country. About 12 years after he graduated from Princeton, he got a letter in the mail inviting him to come back and preach in the chapel at the seminary. Now, I have to stop here and give you a little sidebar about this because you may not get the awesome nature of such an invitation. For a young man who's gone to seminary, has been out preaching in his church for 12 years to be invited to come back and preach in the seminary where he got his training and stand in the chapel where all the faculty who taught him are going to be sitting in front of him. Well, Donald Gray Barnhouse came back to Princeton to preach in the seminary chapel, and as he got up to speak, he noticed that his most famous professor, Robert Dick Wilson, had come into the chapel, walked all the way down to the front, and sat right in the front row, right in front of the pulpit. After he had finished his address, Robert Dick Wilson walked up to him, shook his hand, and said, Donald, if you ever come back here to preach, I will not come to hear you. I only come once to hear my boys preach, and I come to see if they are big godders or little godders. Not sure that he understood what he meant. Barnhouse asked for an explanation. Oh, said Wilson, It's very simple. Some men have only a little God, and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do the miraculous. He can't take care of life's details. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and so I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great and mighty God. He speaks, and it is done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong, on behalf of those who fear him. Barnhouse, anxious to know in which category he was, breathed a sigh of relief when he heard the man's final statement. Wilson said, Donald, you have a great God. 
and he will bless your ministry. He looked deeply into the eyes of the young preacher, smiled, and walked out. And of course, looking back on it from our perspective, God did bless Donald Gray Barnhouse, blessed him abundantly, and through him has blessed people like me and some of you who've benefited from his writings. As we begin this message today, I want to ask you this question. What kind of God do you have? That's especially important in the days in which we live. It isn't that God changes sizes, but it is that we, in our appreciation of God, have either a high view of God or a very low view of God. I don't know about the rest of you, but in the world in which I live today, I need a big God. I don't need a puny little wimp of a God. I need a God who is able to do above and beyond all that I can ever ask or think. While I don't necessarily agree with Elihu's approach to Job's friends and to Job, and while he is a little bit arrogant, I do appreciate the fact that as I read the words of Elihu, if he had been that day preaching in the Princeton Chapel, I think Robert Dick Wilson would have said to him, Elihu, you have a big God. You're a big Godder. As we begin this lesson in the 34th chapter, Elihu begins with a plea to those who are going to listen to him that they pay attention. He's going to begin immediately by talking to the three men who've already addressed Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. So in the first four verses, we read, Elihu further answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men. Give ear to me, you who have knowledge. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us know among ourselves what is good. As we listen to Elihu, we can pick up a little of his arrogance. He commends himself sort of in a backhanded way. He tells those who are listening to him teach that they're wise and great in understanding. I mean, what kind of man does that make him? He's the teacher of the wise and the understanding. Even goes so far as to say, if you listen carefully, you'll notice that my words are as tasty as a good morsel of food. Yes, he did have a bit of an edge to him, a little bit of arrogance, but he's going to do something in his address to these men and to Job that is very valuable. He's going to defend God's justice, and he's going to encourage Job to look to God with the eye of faith. The first question that he wants to answer for Job and for all of us is this. It's a question you've asked, perhaps not in these terms. And here's the question. Is the God we serve a just God? Perhaps if I rephrased it like this, it would help. Is the God we serve a fair God? Is God fair? Earlier in his discussions with the three men who had come to help him, Job had denied the justice of God. In fact, here in verse 5, Elihu even reminds Job of that. He says, for Job has said, I am righteous, and God has taken away my justice. Earlier in the book, back, for instance, in chapter 19, verses 6 and 7, Job cried aloud, there is no justice. In chapter 27, verse 2, he said, God has taken away my justice. Job felt that he had been treated as a sinner when he wasn't a sinner, and that God wouldn't give him an opportunity even to explain himself, which he did not understand. And Job believed the only way he can reconcile what was going on in his life and the absence of any word from God was that God had just not treated him fairly. 
Please remember, friends, we look at this book from the perspective of having read the first two chapters. We know about the deal that Satan made with God concerning Job. But Job doesn't know that. He's never been told what's going on. He knows he's lived a life of integrity. He's not violated his relationship with Almighty God. But all of these bad things have happened to him. He's lost his family. He's lost his wealth. He's lost the admiration of his wife. And his friends have been nothing but trash him. And all of his days he sits on an ash heap outside of the city with boils from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. And all this is going on, and nobody says, Job, let me explain to you what's happening in your life. Not a word. Remember, from chapter 2 until the end of the book, not a word from God. So Job figures, you know what, this isn't fair. That's what I'd be thinking, probably, wouldn't you? This is not fair. God, I've done everything you've told me to do. I've lived up to your standard. I've been a good husband, a good father, raised a bunch of good kids. And look at what's happened to me. It's not fair. God, you are not just. And Elihu says, let me help you with that, Job. (laughs) Let me defend the justice of God. And in this chapter, he begins by presenting three arguments in defense of God's judgment. First of all, verses 10 through 15, he tells Job this, and Job's friends, he says to them, if God is not just, he is not God. If God is not just, he is not God. Look at verse 10, chapter 34. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. Verse 12. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Do you remember back in the book of Genesis when Abraham was pleading for Lot, pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah. In chapter 18 of Genesis, verse 25, he made this statement. He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Absolutely. Warren Wiersbe writes that if God is truly God, then he is perfect. And if he is perfect, he cannot do wrong. An unjust God, said Wiersbe, is as unthinkable as a square circle or a round triangle. God is always true to his righteous character, and he can never act in contradiction to it. 31 times in the book of Job, God is called the Almighty. And the possibility that the Almighty God of the universe could do wrong and deny Job the justice that he deserved, it's just not possible in the realm of Elihu's thinking. So he says, first of all, you guys, let me tell you what I know. If you say God is not just, if God is unjust, he can't be God. For us, if you think God is unfair, let me just put you straight. If you think God is unfair, then you don't have a God because an unfair God is no God at all. Then he goes on to say, now let me say something else about this, this matter of the justice of God. If God is not just, he cannot be God. And secondly, if God is not just, he can't even govern Verse 16 through 20, he says, If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. Should one who hates justice govern? (laughs) Do you want an unjust governor in this world? Of course not. We've dealt with that in the past, maybe some of it even now. But you don't want an unjust God in heaven. And what Job and his friends are being told by Elihu is this. Don't say that the problem you have is that God is unjust. Because if he's not a just God, first of all, he can't even be God. And if he could be God and he were unjust, he couldn't govern. 
Elihu shifts his attention away from Job's three friends now. And we know this because the Hebrew words are in the singular instead of the plural. And he says to Job, Job, if God who rules the world is unjust, there would be no order, no harmony, and everything would just fall apart. So get rid of that idea. You don't have an unjust God. If he were unjust, he couldn't be God. And if he were unjust and he were God, he couldn't govern. So there's two things you need to remember. And then finally he says to him, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 34, if God is unjust, then he's not good. He says, you say that God is unjust. If that is true, it's got to be one of two things. He's unjust because he cannot see what's going on, so he doesn't know what to do. (laughs) Or he sees what's going on, and for some reason he doesn't choose to tell us. He does something that doesn't seem like it should be done. Now, here's the problem. You see, in our realm today, a human judge hears a case And because of his human limitations, he makes the best decision that he can. And let's face it, sometimes he's wrong. But Job wanted to present his case before God, and God wouldn't let Job come. But the honest problem is this. What could Job contribute to God's knowledge of his case? Because God already knew everything anyway. Job says, let me have a moment with God so I can tell him what's going on. Hello? God already knows what's going on. He's the perfect judge. And notice in this text, it tells us why he's such a perfect judge. First of all, he sees everything. Verses 21 and 22, his eyes are on the ways of man and he sees all his steps. There's no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. Elihu says, you know, don't think about sneaking up on God with some new information. God sees everything. Not only that, God knows everything. Notice verse 23. For he need not further consider a man that he should go before God in judgment. He breaks in pieces, mighty men, without inquiry, sets others in their place. Therefore, he knows their works and overthrows them in their might and they are crushed. When God puts a man on trial, listen to me carefully, he never has to cross-examine him. (laughs) When God puts a man on trial, he already knows what is in man. He's not obligated to conduct an inquiry. He doesn't have to go gather more information. God's knowledge is not skewed like man's. He judges with perfect wisdom and knowledge. He knows us as we are. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Psalm 139 puts it this way. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought while it's afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word on my tongue, O Lord, that you know it altogether. You say, well, Pastor Jeremiah, that's pretty good information to know about old Job. It's pretty good information for us to know about ourselves. (laughs) While we may not be in Job's situation... We are all, one of these days, one way or the other, going to stand before the judge of all the earth. Now, let me just explain to you what I mean by that. If you're not a Christian here today, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, at the end of time on this earth, you will stand before God at what they call the white throne judgment. It's a fearful, awful moment when it is too late for you to become a Christian And the judgment is simply the passing of the sentence of eternal death upon your soul. For you will live forever outside of the presence of God. 
Well, you say, Pastor, I sure am glad I'm a Christian. I don't have to worry about that. Amen. Me too. But there's another judgment in the Bible, and some of you know about it. It's called the Bema Seat or the Judgment Seat of Christ. That judgment occurs right after the rapture. And when you come before that judgment, you're a Christian. Your sin's already dealt with. You won't have to deal with your sin. But the Bible says we're going to stand before the Lord and give an account of the things we have done in the flesh since we have been Christians. Now, not our sins, but our service. Have we served the Lord? Have we honored him with the gifts that he has given us? Sometimes I think this, and maybe you think this too. I've tried to serve the Lord the best I can. But knowing what I know about the deception of the human heart, sometimes I wonder if I've ever done anything for God with a totally pure and undiluted motive. Have you ever had that thought? Because even in our best moments when we're serving God, sometimes we have a personal agenda. Sometimes we have a hidden motive. The Bible says when we stand before God someday, he's going to look at all the things we've done. He will not only see the work we have done, but he will see the reason why we have done what we have done. And that ought to drive us to our knees more than it does. God sees everything, and he knows everything. And the Bible says he judges everything. Verse 26, he strikes them as wicked men in the open sight of others because they turn back on him. They would not consider any of his ways. Since God sees the depths of the heart and understands the thoughts of the mind, We cannot say that God is unjust when he judges us. He knows us more than we know ourselves. And he holds the whole world in his hands. And since all of these things are true, Elihu wants to know how Job can feel justified in continuing to question God and demand that God give an account for his actions. You don't go to the most powerful one in the world and make any demands about anything. And he says to Job, you need to remember, my friend, that the God you are questioning knows everything there is to know about you. Are you a man of integrity? Yes. Have you cursed God and asked to die? No. But in between those two things, there's a lot of room for Job to give an account. Not only does God judge everything, but he controls everything. Listen to this. Verse 31. For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Should he repay according to your terms, just because you disavow it? You must choose and not I, therefore speak what you know. Now that's kind of a convoluted paragraph, but let me tell you what it means. In the words of Ray Stedman, who wrote about it, he said this, God's decisions cannot be questioned because he is absolute sovereign over individuals and nations, and he accepts no substitutes for righteousness. People sometimes want to come to God and on their own terms and invent their own salvation. They say, I promise I'll be a better person. I promise to reform, but reform is not what God wants from us. Our Lord is not in the business of reforming people. He's in the business of renewing people. He doesn't want to make us better. He wants to make us new. He doesn't want to take the old us and clean it up. He wants to make a new us. He wants to make us born again. God desires our repentance and our relationship, not our reform. It's not enough to say to God, I'm guilty, but I'll try not to do that again. What God demands of us is unconditional surrender, completely giving up the right to run our own lives. This is what God seeks from us, and he will not accept any other basis for a relationship with him. You cannot change God's mind about what he has declared in his word. So we have here a denial of the justice of God, a defense of the justice of God, and then in the 
35th chapter, we have a description of the justice of God. And I'm just going to cover this quickly so you can just put it in your notes and you can think about it later. But this is incredible theology, incredible truth. Number one, God's justice is not affected by our words. Verses 1 through 3, chapter 35. Moreover, Elihu answered and said, Do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, What advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? And once again, Elihu is instructing Job. And he's actually saying to Job that no matter what he may have said or not have said, it doesn't make any difference to the character of God. Listen to me. God's justice is not affected by our words. God is just because it's his nature to be just. He is just whether my words match up to that or not. I can say anything I want, and it has no impact at all on the justice of God. Because his justice is who he is. It's a part of his character. It's a part of his nature. You do not have, nor do I have, the power with the words of my mouth to change the nature of God. That's what Elihu was saying to Job. Job apparently thought if he said God was unjust, he'd get a hearing. God isn't going to be affected by what you say. Hmm. Isn't that an interesting discussion for the day in which we live? I mean, justice is, it's on everybody's lips. And it's as if, um, if we're not careful, we think that, that God can be altered by our discussions about him. And of course, God is the absolute, the ultimate absolute. And once we understand that, a lot of things start to fall into perspective. Tomorrow we'll finish up our discussion of how big is your God. I hope you'll be here for us when we open our Bibles together to Job again tomorrow. Don't forget to ask for your copy of Rob Morgan's book, God Works All Things Together for Your Good, when you send your gift to Turning Point during the month of February. And also, be sure and ask for a copy of our magazine when you write. I know you'll enjoy it. It will lift you up and help you. We'll see you next time. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's current series, Making Sense of It All, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. When you do, ask for your copy of Robert J. Morgan's Book of Comfort and Encouragement. God works all things together for your good. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app for your smartphone or tablet or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries to access our programs and resources. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, Making Sense of It All, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. If you've enjoyed today's program with Dr. David Jeremiah, you might be interested in hearing it again at your convenience. Stay connected to Turning Point by visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca or by downloading our free Canadian mobile app. The app can be found by searching for Turning Point Canada on your smart device app store. Create an account and order digital resources from today's program with easy one-click checkout at davidjeremiah.ca. I once heard the difference between reputation and character described this way. Reputation is what other people think to be true about you, while character is what you know to be true. 
The great man of letters, Samuel Johnson, wrote that a man would rather have a hundred lies told about him than one truth which he wished people didn't know. Well, character is everything, and our goal in life is to build an honorable character that ultimately becomes our reputation. A good starting place is David's prayer in the Psalms. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and show me if there is anything that needs changing. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's character on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.